Friends, uh, we're going to continue our sermon series we've been on. This is the third Sunday now on the parables of Jesus. And we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses, uh, starting with verse 25. And we're going to put this up uh, here so that you can read along uh, with us in your mind. And listen to not only the parable itself, but the interaction that leads to the parable. Because Jesus is talking to this lawyer uh, about uh, what it means to inherit eternal life. But then it goes in a different direction. So we're going to look at this passage together. So I invite you to hear these words. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him and went And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on him. Then he put him on his own. This is the same thing again. That is crazy. That's not the way the Bible uh, 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 says it. So let's go ahead to the next slide. The next day, this is where the Bible goes next, okay? The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So it is Mother's Day, and I think that this uh, parable sort of gives us the space to talk a little bit about love, right? And what it means to care for other people. So uh, first of all, just the idea of being a parent, being a mother, being a father, when you are uh, in this sort of relationship of caring for a child, uh, it is easy and it is hard, right? It's easy because you often love this person with your whole heart. And it is difficult because, well, you're caring for somebody who sometimes can't care for themselves, who doesn't know what they always want, and who sometimes will even, you know, be mean to you. When they get older, They do that from time to time, right? Whether it be the terrible twos or terrible threes or even up to middle school. 
I remember when I was in middle school or maybe like my first year of high school, I got so upset with my mom. She and I were in an argument and I just said, I hate you, right? I didn't mean that, but I said it. I said, I hate you. And I stomped up the stairs to my bedroom and I shut the door and I locked the door. And after about, you know, two, three minutes, I think my mom was trying to, you know, calm herself down. It didn't work that well because I heard her stomping up the stairs as well. And she came to my door and tried to open it, but it was locked. And she told me to open the door. And I was like, you know, you can't make me. And so I heard stomp, stomp, stomp. And then I heard stomp, stomp, stomp. And she kicked my door open, broke the door jam where it was supposed to be. And they didn't fix it for like six months just to remind me whose house it is and who can lock the door and when, right? My mom was a beast that day. Like she knocked my door open, right? And, and, and yet she forgave me for the words I said. I had to sort of, you know, you know, go through my punishment, but she did that out of love even though it didn't seem like it at first because she was reminding me of her love and her guidance and her authority over me at that time, right? I had to kind of learn the way I'm supposed to treat somebody. And she didn't let that dominate how she looked at me. She let that go. I'm sure it stung, right? But over time, she kind of let that go because she loved me, even though from time to time, I probably was a little unlovable. I took my son to go see uh, a comedian uh, this year, uh, Jim Gaffigan, and he said that parenting, you often say the same thing with infants and with teenagers. With infants, you say, I love them so much, but this is the hardest thing I have ever done. And with teenagers, you say, I love them so much, this is the hardest thing I've ever done, and I can't kill them. I wonder if my mom felt like that that day, right? So you love them, and yet they're sometimes difficult to love, even though they have this innate beauty to who they are, too. And to think about this, all of us are children of somebody, right? And we're kind of those people, too, that we have been lovable and we have been unlovable. And sometimes the people in our lives have responded with the right kind of love, and unfortunately, sometimes they have not. I have a good friend of mine who his mother left home when he was in middle school, never to be heard from again until she got sick and passed away just this year. And so he has this kind of hurt in his life from a mother who wasn't there. And yet some of us have had that experience of a mother who is there for us Consistently, and who cares for us even in those difficult times. Nobody's perfect, of course, but a lot of this is about how we love, how we love, and when we love, right? How we love and when we love. It's not just loving when it's convenient. It's loving when it is right and good and needed. So this parable uh, of Jesus and the Good Samaritan, he is sort of having this conversation uh, with a, a lawyer. Now, I don't want you to think about a lawyer like Alexander Shanana, no, 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 okay? I'm not talking about a lawyer like that. I'm talking about 
a, a scribe, somebody who studies God's law, right, scripture, and who tells us what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to act based on God's law. This has nothing to do with the legal system, so to speak. It has more about how we respond to God's commandments. And Jesus is somebody that is teaching about what God says. He's a rabbi, a a traveling teacher. And this scribe apparently doesn't have the sort of inclination to sit here and say, hey, you seem to be really smart. I'm going to ask you a question. No, this scribe is seeking to test Jesus, right? He's trying to trap Jesus or trick Jesus. And so he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's almost like he's kind of waiting for Jesus to slip up and to say something he shouldn't, right? But Jesus sort of turns the tables like a good mentor or a therapist. He doesn't answer the question with a statement. What does he do? He answers the question with a question. Well, what, you're, you're a lawyer. You're a scribe. You're supposed to know this stuff. What do you read in God's laws? So the scribe says, the lawyer says, you know, you're supposed to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are two commandments. Jesus calls these the greatest commandments, right? Right? He, these are the, the commandments from the Old Testament. One is from something called the Shema, which is love, uh, Israel, your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Which in the Greek, they add mind because the Hebrew word soul includes mind and soul. But the Greek doesn't do that. So the Greek says mind and soul, okay, and strength. So that's part of an Old Testament command. And then later on in the Old Testament, there is this idea of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. So when the scribe says, this is how you inherit eternal life, Jesus says, good job, go and do that, right? He sort of gets by through the testing by allowing this guy to answer the question. Now, you might wonder, what does he mean by eternal life? Is this about like, how do you get into heaven just by loving God and loving your neighbor? That's not really what the scribe, the lawyer asked. He didn't say, how do I get into heaven? He said, how do I have holy, loving, amazing, blessed life right now? Okay, Uh, even though we understand eternal life as the understanding of being with God in heaven as well as the resurrection of our bodies, he's not talking about that. He said, how do I have blessed life? How do I have God's blessed life right now? And the, the scribe answers his own question by loving God and loving your neighbor, right? Go and do likewise. So the scribe sort of, you know, failed in his attempt to sort of trick Jesus, but he answers the question correctly So then he tries a different tactic, right? He says, who is my neighbor? So who is my neighbor? If I'm going to have a blessed life and I'm going to have to love my neighbor, I need to know who qualifies as a neighbor so I can just do that, right? And what does Jesus do? Does he answer with a statement? No. He doesn't answer with a question either this time. He answers with a parable. Now, a parable is often a story meant to teach to uh, help people understand uh, something, but also to call them into action. So a parable is more than just a story to kind of help you see it as a metaphor. It's to inform you, but also to affect you, to make you change, to make you see the world in a different way, or to help you understand how you're supposed to live. 
So this is a Jewish scribe, somebody who studies the law. He most likely would identify with the Jewish characters in the story, right? Being somebody who has dedicated his whole life to studying God's law. So Jesus tells about a man. We don't know who the man is. We assume the man who is attacked is Jewish. He's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now you have to understand, Jericho is in one of the lowest places on earth. The lowest place on earth that is exposed to air is the Dead Sea. And Jericho is the closest city to the Dead Sea. It is below sea level. Jerusalem is way above sea level. If you were to go to Israel in the month of June, it could be 110 in Jericho and the Dead Sea, and it could be 80 degrees in Jerusalem. And it only takes about 18 miles to go in between the two places. Why? Because elevation, right? The elevation change. So if you're going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, you're going downhill. 17, 18 miles, and you're going down rocky, terrible uh, terrain. So it's easy for robbers to hide in this area. And this man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. We assume maybe he's Jewish. He's going down this robe, and he's attacked and left as half dead. Now, what does half dead mean? We think that means that he is so beaten up that he's almost non-responsive, knocked out, right? You could assume by looking at him, unless you got close enough that he wasn't even breathing. So this man is attacked and he's half dead. And two Jewish people, we know these characters are Jewish because of the clues in the parable. The first is a priest. It's a Jewish priest who works in the temple. He's going down to Jericho and he sees this man has been beaten up and left for dead. He may assume this guy's dead and that means he's ritually unclean. You're not supposed to touch a dead body, right? If you're a Jewish person, unless you are a family member, close family member. So he sees this, this man on the road and he thinks, well, I don't need to get ritually unclean. I'm just going to pass by on the other side. So he literally goes as far as he can go on the road away from this man and goes by him. This is a man who leads the worship of Israel, right? He goes to make the sacrifices and the main offerings in the temple. And yet, when he sees this man who is left for dead, he tries to go as far away on the other side as he possibly can. Then a Levite. And a Levite is somebody who is sort of a descendant of the priestly family, the kind of descendant of the people that would make the priest, but he's not a priest himself. He likely would have worked in the religious life of the people. He may have, you know, prepared the animals. He may have been a sort of guard for the temple. We don't know who he is, but he is a Levite from the family of Levi, the priestly family. Not a priest, but connected to it. What does he do when he sees the body? He goes by to the other side as well. That leaves the third person who the scribe would never identify himself with, and that's the Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans. They didn't want to be around them. And this is made clear over and over again. When Jesus in the Gospel of John meets with a Samaritan woman at a well, She's amazed that he would even talk to her. She's amazed that he would even drink from the same well, right? They weren't supposed to really be around together. It was because Samaritans, even though they had some similarities to Jews, they would read some of the same scriptures, but not all. 
They were seen as idolaters because they would not worship just to God alone, but to other gods. So they were seen as kind of worse than the Romans in a sense, right? The Romans didn't know any better. They worshiped their gods because they thought it was the case, but the Samaritans should have known better, right? They, they, uh, they disobeyed God. They didn't just become naive. And so the Samaritans were hated. Well, what does the Samaritan do? He sees the man, and he doesn't go on the opposite side of the road. He comes near and takes care of the man, you know, heals him. He pours oil and wine. Why wine? It would have helped kill any of the bacteria, right? It would have kind of healed the wound, sterilized the wound in a way. Oil to maybe kind of prevent any more dirt or bacteria to kind of get into the wound. And then he would have taken care of the man, sending him to an inn. Likely, this inn may have been a a home or some sort of uh, business that was in Jericho. So the man would have taken him from wherever he was on the road and taken him all the way down to Jericho where he could find healing. And not only that, he basically, the Samaritan, told the innkeeper or whoever it was, here are two coins. This is enough to take care of him for a little while. Hold a record or make a record of whatever you pay for this man and I'll come back and make it right. So he didn't just do the right thing for that moment, what did he do? He tried to make sure that the man had whatever he needed to get out of the situation he was in. The Samaritan is the last person a Jewish person would have thought would do the right thing. And Jesus tells the story in such a way that there's no way you can interpret another hero other than the Samaritan. And we kind of get the sense of this because after Jesus tells the parable, what does he say? Who, who was the good neighbor? Who did the right thing? The scribe can't even say the guy's nationality, right? He doesn't say the Samaritan. He says the one who showed mercy. He can't even like get it out of his lips who it really was, right? The one who showed mercy, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, to the scribe, you're right, go and be like a Samaritan. You know how much of an insult that would have been to this scribe? Go and be a Samaritan. Go and do likewise. So what does Jesus mean with this? He seems to point out that if we're going to have a loving, blessed, holy life, if we're going to have fullness in our life, we have to love God and we have to love our neighbor. And our neighbor is anyone that we encounter who's in need. Anyone who we encounter who's in need. Sometimes when we think of neighbors, we think of next door neighbors, right? We just think of the people kind of immediately around us. Sometimes we might even uh, talk about who is our neighbor and kind of expand that to the city or the town that we live in. But very rarely would you believe that anyone outside of your town is your neighbor. But Jesus expands that, doesn't he? He says that the Samaritan, who doesn't even live in Judah, he doesn't even live in that area of Israel, sees the man who's hurt and acts like a neighbor to him. So he's not really a physical neighbor like we might identify 
Your neighbor is anyone who is in need who is immediately in front of you. Love your neighbor just like the Samaritan did. Go and do likewise. This is what Jesus would tell us today. Go and do likewise. Love your neighbor. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Be just like a Samaritan. So one of the things that you might want to ask yourself today is, how am I going to do this? How am I going to love God? How am I going to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? Today, this month, whatever. And how am I going to love my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Is my neighbor just the person that is in need next door? Or when I'm downtown Birmingham, is that person my neighbor? When I go on vacation to Atlanta or the Caribbean, are the people in front of me my neighbor? If so, how do I respond? What do I do? I can't do everything, right? I I don't have enough money to pour out on every single person who has need, but is there someone in need that I can make a difference for? How can I do that? You know, uh, I've told this story before here in the gathering. I have a, a, a person in my life who used this story over and over again to remind people about what making a difference looks like, especially in leadership. And it's the uh, parable, if you will, um, of the starfish. One day all these starfish washed up on the beach, so many that it was impossible to get them all back in the water. And they were there baking in the sun. They were all going to die. And two people were walking on the beach, and they kind of happened upon all these starfish, you know, baking in the sun. And one of the people bends down and picks up a starfish and throws it back in the ocean. And he does it again and again. And his companion says to him, there is no way you can rescue all of these starfish. Why are you even doing this? And the guy bends down and picks up another starfish and throws it back in, and he says, I made a difference for that one. So we may not be able to, you know, rescue all of our neighbors, but it means we should try to do something, right? We should do something because whether our neighbors are lovable or unlovable, whether they agree with us or disagree with us, they're still our neighbor. And if they're in need, we need to help them. If they're the kind of person that we think the world would be better off without, are we really going to ever inherit this eternal life the scribe talks about because we have that heart of a heart inside of us? Or are we willing to make a difference to try to help our neighbor, whether they live next door or whether they happen to be somewhere else. There's a a spiritual guide, a Christian uh, mystic person. His name is Dallas Willard. He's just a faithful guy, but he's helped a lot of people build up sort of a spiritual core for themselves. And he talks about our circles of neighborliness. And he talks about, you know, there's probably two, three, four people in your life that are your core people, right? These are your the spouse, the children, the parents, whoever it is in your life. These are the sort of people you spend the most time with. And he says, if we're going to learn to love God and love our neighbor, we have to start in that inner circle. We've got to learn to love other people rightly 
within our smallest sphere. And sometimes we kind of are the people where we don't always love the people in this inner circle as well as we should. I know several parents, several parents that I've talked to and I say, gosh, your child is just so amazing. He's so kind, so wonderful. I tell this to confirmation parents. I tell this to, you know, some of the kids, uh, parents who are from Discovery Weekend and they get up and they speak. And you know what the parent usually says? Well, thank you, but you should see them at home, (laughs) right? You should see what they're like at home. They're evil. (laughs) But when they're outside, they're so nice and kind. And I think it's because even though we love one another, sometimes we kind of allow ourselves to be less loving and less understanding of people in our own house than we do with our friends at school or our teachers or our neighbors. That's not the way it should be, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just is the way it is. And so we've got to work, Dallas Willard says, at loving people in our inner circle first. And then he goes to the next circle, and that's kind of like the other people in your life, whether it be grandparents or next-door neighbors or coworkers or extended family members, whoever that sort of second circle is for you. Learn to love them just like you love the inner circle. And then he gets to that third circle, and that's the, in a sense, the neighbor circle. The people that you may not know very well that you happen upon in life or you are walking beside for a small portion of your life, and you've got to learn to love them just like you love the people in those other circles. He talks about this being a process of developing a neighbor-loving heart. We might read this parable and think the point is, just do the next right thing that you you can, right? But if we're only thinking about it as an objective, we're missing the point. It's not just about, hey, I'm going to do the next right thing when I see a homeless person. Jesus talks about this as a way of living, not just a task. Developing a neighbor-loving heart means practicing loving God and loving our neighbor all the time from that inner core all the way out to our neighbors. The more that we can allow this to be a grace-sustained habit over time, the more difference it will make in us so that we will love our neighbors and love them well. So who is your neighbor? Can you imagine in your head right now who that inner circle of three, five people, three to five people are? Can you imagine what they look like? Can you imagine the last time you did something kind and generous for them? Hopefully there are a few mothers that you've been nice to already today, right? My my daughter is here today in the traditional service. She didn't really feel like coming to church today. And I said, I might let you skip on any other day, but it's Mother's Day. Your mom is preaching today. You've got to go, right? (laughs) Just showing up is going to be a part of loving her mom. When's the last time you loved other people in those circles? Who is your neighbor? And how is God calling you to love them? According to Jesus, our neighbor is, well, the person in front of us, depending on where we are and when we are. Go and live like that. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. 
As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.